This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Hello everyone. Nice to see you all. Um, those of you that know me now, I'm not one for pomp and ceremony and uh, such things, so I'm not going to... Really? Is that better? You have to lean forward. I'm just prepping, uh, <laughs> prepping for you guys here. You have to stand very close to the microphones, I suppose, to avoid feedback. Right, can you hear me now? Sort of. Carl, come on, you've got good ears. I'm speaking pretty loud. You really can't hear me. I'm like, now I'm shouting. Don't make me use a dad voice. Okay, well, hopefully you can hear me. Um, uh, I, yeah, not one for pomp and ceremony, so I'm not going to do any elaborate introductions of the speakers. Um, safe to say that uh, you are going to, I think, enjoy hearing from a different perspective. Um, it's a very rare thing that you'll get to hear pieces of work and research done by an actuary and an anthropologist at the same time. Um, so, I mean, I had great fun going through the, the material ahead of time um, and it wasn't only my laziness not to find other sponsors for, for sessions that I was asked to find sponsors for, but I was certainly intrigued by the, the topic, found it interesting and I hope you all do too. They're going to do some own, uh, introductions um, themselves because it's part of the, the story uh, and the narrative of the, of the work. So without further ado, uh, Yugeshri, are you up first? Thank you very much. What a warm welcome. Can you all see me? <laughs> um, it's so good that you're all here. I'm really impressed with the turnout. Thank you for coming. And I'm really honored to be here with Beth, our medical anthropologist. So we want this to be more a discussion than a presentation. Beth and I will not present answers because there are no easy answers to such a complex question. And Yet there is such potential in this room. There is so much knowledge and experience and passion for healthcare. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what emerges. We want to see how we might draw out all that richness of experience and integrate the actuarial and the anthropological perspective to look at this challenge with fresh eyes. So let's start with what you're bringing into the room. I'll go first. I'm Yageshri. And yeah, my story starts about, I guess, five years ago in relation to this topic, where my doctor basically said I was de developing diabetes. The blood test showed prediabetes. It was really, it was really a shock for me. It was horrifying, actually, to be so confronted with my mortality. And it forced me to really examine my life and reevaluate my priorities. So after going through denial, I went through the other stages of grieving and then started actually acting to change my, um, my ways. Um, I found a dietitian, did a five month elimination and food sensitivity testing and diet. And, and I've actually just done another screening in September and my 
both test results came back normal. So the H3A1C and the glucose tolerance test came back normal. And so I'm cured. <laughs> Not really, right? I still struggle every day with maintaining this change. And today we want to explore why. As in actually moving into the healthcare and social security sectors, I have a sense of the socioeconomic impact of this challenge. And I'm really honored to have Beth here to discuss it. So my name is Beth, and I'm a medical anthropologist, um, which I've said a few times today, and people have given me kind of big eyes in the same ways that I look at actuaries. What are you talking about? Um, really what it means is I've studied the social questions around health uh, for a fairly significant time now. My background is actually in HIV, so I worked first with community health workers, supporting patients on antiretroviral treatment and trying to understand their working conditions and how they negotiated between what was expected of them and what was practicable in their field. And then worked a lot with adolescents on HIV treatment, their families, community health workers, to try and understand what was driving how well adolescents adhered to their medication and what were the kind of social conditions under which they were taking medication. Um, and it was in that process that I began to veer towards looking at chronic conditions more broadly. In the kind of 10 years that I worked on HIV, the epidemic had shifted drastically with the arrival of antiretroviral treatment, and I found myself sitting in a clinic in Grahamstown one day on field work, observing the waiting room, and it suddenly struck me that the people there that day didn't wake up feeling sick that morning. Um, that's not why they were in the clinic. Most of them had come for a routine visit because they were chronic patients. It was to collect medication, to get their blood tested, to check their blood pressure, and so forth. So we were dealing with chronicity on a much grander scale. And the grandmother who I was sitting with um, at the clinic, who was looking after an adolescent with HIV, her grandchild, and had lost a daughter to AIDS, that would have been the child's mother, said to me something like, HIV, diabetes, high blood pressure, these conditions are all the same. You take medication and you're never cured. And so her sense was that she was living in a kind of time of illness and that she had witnessed that over many generations. And that time of illness was also kind of intractable, that we would have to deal with how to negotiate health long-term, probably until we die. So at the moment, I am working on a project in the Eastern Cape Karoo that tries to understand what is called non-communicable diseases, and we will problematize that term a little bit later, um, but really to understand what long-term chronic conditions look like in this region and how people are grappling with them in their everyday lives. So what we'd like to do now, and I'm going to run to the flip chart, is to get some thoughts from you on why you are here. So we're going to discuss with, um, with the person next to you what brings you here today, either personal reflection or professional experience around NCDs. Um, it's not going to use the flip chart for this part just yet. So you're just going to find the person next to you. I'll time you, pick who goes first, and spend one minute discussing what brings you here. Go. <laughs> and swap. Okay. Sounds like that's conversations wrapped up. So now that you've discussed what brings you into the room, let's look at what we want to take out of this. So we want to explore NCDs as a response to 
the existing social and structural conditions we find ourselves in, and to integrate the actuarial pers perspective with qualitative data emerging from BETS research in the Eastern Cape Karoo, and then to play with that, see what happens. Sound good? Does it match what you came here with? <laughs> awesome. So, um, now I'm going to ask some questions, and you're going to observe what words come up for you, one or two phrases, and then just shout them out. Beth's going to fill up this page with a sort of word cloud, and um, then we might do a rapid-fire thing on NCDs. Let's see what happens. Okay, so I'd like you to reflect on how you experience NCDs. Where, what are they? Where do they come from? How are they affecting us? First word? Diet. Diet. Thank you. Next? Lifestyle. Lifestyle. Thanks. Genetics. Okay. Epigenetics. Epigenetics. Nice. I like how it's feeding each other. What else? It's still got a lot of space there. So, Medicine. Biomedicine. Biotechnology. Maybe. Yeah. Carry on. Cost. I can't hear? Cost. Cost. Okay, aging. aging, nice, and that actually links to yesterday's presentation with Sarah Harper with life expectancy and healthy life expectancy. And what else? Thank you, environmental conditions. Beth has an interesting story on that. Bad science. Bad science. Okay, unpack a little bit. I like Glenn Goldberg about Okay, right. Thanks. Capitalism. Yeah, nice, Shivani. <laughs> Economic structures. What else? Quality of life. Thank you. Cultural context. Yes, dal is not the same without the rice, people. It's really hard to do banting as an Indian vegetarian. That's just my two cents. Sorry? Driving of the cards. I almost wrote driving. <laughs> um, I think we're good, yeah. Okay. Go for it. Do you want to talk about bio things? Uh, I mean, I feel like we're pretty comprehensive here. Yeah. Yeah, and we should just dive into... Okay, cool. Yeah. So, we're very um, yeah, confident that we can speak to most of these themes, not all of them and not in, definitely not in sufficient detail. But some of the perceptions that we just want to unsettle a little bit is this idea of infectiousness. So NCDs, by definition, not communicable, therefore not infectious. And yet there is a social contagion about these epidemics or these diseases. And as highly social creatures, that makes sense to me, that we would be susceptible to like a social epidemic in that a lot of the drivers of NCDs are these things we might group under social determinants of health. Um, then we also, there is a big overlap with chronicity, but the way someone experiences a chronic disease can really differ, and you might only discover your chronic disease with a very acute episode, like you might only find out about um, your heart disease through like a heart attack, a life and death situation. And then if we look at cancer versus HIV, cancer is treated so intensively, um, but it's 
you know, an NCD. HIV is not an NCD, but with the right treatment with ARVs, the patient's experience of it might be very similar in that you're on this long-term, like lifetime medication. But once you stabilize, you can really live a full and healthy life, or, you know, a fuller life. This concept of aging, there is definitely a link, and there is this um, drive to close the gap and, and um, facilitate more healthy aging, and yet it's not even across the globe. And Beth will show later that if you look at the deaths by age, you see many premature deaths caused by NCDs, and that's really sad. 44% of premature deaths worldwide are caused by NCDs, and 85% of that in low- and middle-income countries. So there's a there's huge costs there around like economic activity, implications for family structures, more on that later. And then there's this concept like it's an urbanization thing. It's maybe an urban problem or as people sort of get more formal jobs and start earning some money, then maybe they change their diet and become more susceptible. And yet there's such a high prevalence of these diseases in the Eastern Cape Karoo, which is a rural area. And that's what we'll look at a little later. This concept um, of it being costly, it's, I mean, it's much broader than, there's a much broader definition of cost. But let's just look at one scheme. This is Discovery Health Medical Scheme. The cost of claims for a year over the period October 2017 to September 2018. And the amounts are in billions of rands. The red and black slices can be roughly um, called NCDs, so the chronic conditions and cancer. Um, that's about 11% of claims. And yet, that big gray slice, the 28, 29 billion rand of hospital claims, might also include a lot of cases that were relating to NCDs. For example, a heart bypass surgery the average cost of that is almost half a million rand. And so there's a huge overlap there. It doesn't, you can't get a sense from just looking at that graph how much NCDs is costing the health sector. And then there's the nature of the way that money is spent. So this only looks at claims, and 70% of chronic claims are actually spent on medicine. There are further costs spent on disease management and programs like lifestyle programs, reward programs. Um, so there's a much broader definition of costs that's harder to see and harder to measure the value that we're deriving from that. It is growing quickly. This is data from the Council of Medical Schemes looking at the prevalence of chronic diseases. It's only the diseases that are on the CDL and the chronic disease list, and it measures the annual average increase in prevalence over the years 20, 2012 to 2017. You see the first bar is HIV, still growing so quickly, I was surprised. But then the second one is bipolar mood disorder, and um, late at the end there is asthma. So that brought home for me that mental illnesses and respiratory conditions are also part of this grouping, and they are growing quickly. Some of that might be due to 
better diagnosis, better awareness, and um, maybe changes in health-seeking behavior, so people are now actually seeking treatment for these conditions. But something to note is that this is on a, what they call the SRM definition. So it's a really tight measure where they only look at people that claimed um, medication for these conditions. So there might be a more general prevalence, much higher than this, um, which we really don't have a sense of, actually. And this is only in the private sector. What we're also seeing is comorbidity. So it's very clearly a feature of this type of disease, with about 41 in every 1,000 beneficiaries being treated for two or more chronic conditions. That's the red line right at the top, and you can see a gradually increasing trend. So not only are more people um, developing and not only are more people um, prevalence increasing just of each single disease, but of them happening together in the same person. And that has implications for treatment costs, because at the moment we treat each disease individually, and you might end up taking like a whole lot of pills for your condition. There's no treatment protocol at this stage for what if you have this combination of conditions. Um, in that same report by Discovery Health Medical Schemes, you saw that 78% of the costs were spent on medicine. So again, that clustering effect. This is a projection of South Africa's burden of disease over the next 10 years. So we've got the light gray bars on the very left being HIV, and the very, um, you can see the red bars growing over the next 10 years, increasing. That's the increasing proportion of people living with non-communicable diseases. Um, that excludes cancer. That's in the little gray bar next to that. And then surgical conditions are shown in the black bar, some of which may also be related to NCDs. But there's a cost beyond the health sector. And this is what, yeah, I'm still... Yeah, wrestling with that over half of all deaths are from NCDs. And in 2016, StatsSA mentioned that there's concern around the increasing proportion of deaths from diabetes, particularly for women. Poorer black men are at higher risk with the worst treatment level, so at higher risk of developing these conditions and left untreated. The cost of managing these untreated conditions has been estimated at 10% of South Africa's GDP. And so there's now a social justice issue around this health issue. It's much broader than what we think of as a health problem. And it's a national strategic risk and potentially an opportunity if we really understand the investment case for solving it. I think we all agree it needs to be solved, but how do we do that while appreciating the complexity of the issue? Because it's not just one thing. It's not like one diet is going to s solve everything. Certainly there are better conditions, there are better choices that we can make, but the individual's willpower is finite. You can have a limited impact as an individual when you live in this society that has structures in place that really do direct 
and affect our choices. So I've put some of them in there. Food and work, we might understand. With work, there's a clear link between stress and the development of disease. And one book in the US places um, the US workplace as the fifth leading cause of death because of the stress-related implications. There's a whole other set of factors, things like how media shapes our preferences, how we see beauty and power and strength and wealth, and um, how we relate to each other within households. So who makes the purchasing decision? Who cooks the food? Um, Let's look, for example, just at food systems, because it is such a critical underpin. We have seen over the last 50 to 100 years this increase in commercial farming and monoculture. And that has had the effect of distancing the food producer from the food consumer. We used to work to produce our own food and feed ourselves, but now we work on other things. And there's somebody's job who it is to like, produce our food. But that distance, both in terms of geography and like hands-on production, it actually requires and drives processing of the food, increasing the salt, salt and sugar content of it. And traditional diets and customs become displaced by this. Um, very real example for me is like my grandmother used to know where to find wild mushrooms. And we can't find them anymore because She's the only one who knew, and also because the land use has changed. The, like, I don't know if those mushrooms grow anywhere anymore. What happens is that whole food becomes more expensive and inconvenient, but that's a perception. It's an apparent, um, it looks like it's more expensive and inconvenient, depending on the time frame that you consider. And then it creates a cycle where processed food becomes more high demand. It becomes a no-brainer that you get your food from the supermarket and it's presented to you in a certain way. Your store manager actually becomes your dietitian, especially in the small towns where you have fewer um, choices. And so it creates almost like an economic externality where the price of the good doesn't fully reflect the cost to society. And that actually drives NCD risk factors in a way that is much more complex to solve. Because now it's a social, political, and economic construct that is affecting the individual's choices. And in a world of lower economic growth, there is now the sense that actually further growth will come from a well-being economy, where we recognize the impact of our choices on not just the individual's health, but on the community and planet's health, and then find ways to drive or to grow from that. But we will have to measure different things, because measuring GDP might be creating the wrong incentives for maximizing our health and healthy aging. So let's look at the social aspect of this. Okay. So I'm just going to do a little cat walk. Well, to live without everyone's energy, but I want to mean grab my phone just more <laughs> talk about this. So you may be asking what a medical anthropologist is doing in this room, and uh, to be a good question. So I thought it would be really important to talk about what medical anthropology can bring to this conversation that numbers often cannot. 
So the first really important factor that we've fleshed out already a lot in this room is that non-communicable diseases, probably more so than infectious diseases that we often think of as having certain pathogens and vectors, are really rooted in our social conditions. They're rooted in how we eat, how we work, how we play. And so if we really want to understand them and understand those social vectors, it's really helpful to involve those who spend a lot of their time thinking about the social world and about social context. All of the major epidemics that we've had throughout history have come at key moments of big social change, industrialization, the arrival of uh, transport, um, the arrival of colonialism in Africa, all of them you'll see would have been concurrent with huge epidemics. Smallpox, for example, tuberculosis have come at key historical moments when society is really in flux. So it's important that we bring in that social structural view and anthropologists are well placed along with many other humanities and social scientists to do that. The other real value of anthropology is that we begin our practice from what we call the emic perspective, which just means that when we approach a phenomenon, whether you're studying medication taking or you're studying pottery making, we're trying to understand it from the point of view of the people involved. And for healthcare, that's incredibly important. It's no use for us to develop excellent policy and excellent technology and fabulous new medicine if we don't then also give consideration to how people understand their conditions, how they understand treatment, and how they use that medicine. And it probably won't be surprising to hear that it's not uncommon for people to appropriate medication taking and not use it exactly as it may have been intended or prescribed. So once health technologies hit the floor, it's really people that put them in motion and set them in action for better or worse. And health interventions can often succeed or fail based on how it is that they are received in the communities and contexts in which they arrive. So anthropology is also interested in connections, as many researchers are. They draw connections between things. What anthropologists tend to do is draw connections between the individual and then their household, their community, their social environment, their political environment, their economic environment. So they really nest an individual in the world around them, which couldn't be more important for healthcare because we really struggle with the highly individualistic perspective in healthcare, particularly clinical healthcare. Uh, and it's very difficult to bring in a lot of the world that is shaping whether a person is able to achieve health or not. Again, that makes the person's experience, their emic point of view, crucial. People are really experts of their own experience, and they know better than anyone else the daily challenges of what it takes to achieve health. And then finally, this is kind of about the methodology of anthropology. We never arrive in our research site with a hypothesis in the way that scientists do. And there's really value in testing a hypothesis, but there's also value in trying to enter the field without predetermined explanations that you're trying to test. We try to let the data and what's important to the people involved, whether it's nurses or patients, lead us in terms of what it is that we should be investigating. So I'm going to speak to this graph, but and it's really interesting to me that a graph, being an anthropologist, is what led me to the work that I am doing now. But when I decided I wanted to work on chronic conditions, I spent some time with our district health barometers because I had to choose a field site. Where am I going to go and do this investigation? Where am I going to spend time understanding the experience of NCDs? What you see up here on this graph is a representation of the top 10 districts in South Africa most affected by hypertension. And hypertension is a really important indicator for us because it's a huge risk factor for heart disease, which is our, I mean, cardiovascular conditions are our main killers after HIV and TB. It's also strongly related to diabetes, 
and could easily be considered a, the primary risk factor for NCDs in general. So I thought hypertension was a good place to start um, taking a look to see where NCDs are affecting districts in our country. So as I said, these are the top 10 most hypertensive districts in the country. And here's what I found incredibly surprising. Those districts that are underlined are all Karoo districts, or they overlay parts of the Karoo, which unseated a lot of my own assumptions because all of the global health literature will talk to you about the effects of urbanization in driving NCDs on the ways that people eat more processed food when they live in cities, on the levels of stress in cities, decreased mobility and so on. But here, half of the top 10 most hypertensive districts were rural desert heartland of South Africa. So a lot of the impetus for my research now was to try and figure out what's going on there. So the Karoo, as some of you will know, this is kind of um, a, good, a good impression of the standard picture that many of us have of the Karoo. It's often painted actually as a place of healing, farm to table living, fresh air, go out and smell the kind of fain boss and feel really good about your health. In fact, there are many people of my parents' generation who would tell you that they would have been sent there as children when they were feeling asthmatic or needed to cleanse their lungs or were feeling weak. People were sent to farms in the Karoo to cleanse and restore and this, this continues in a kind of fairly gentrified way with boutique retreats and so on and so forth. Um, but, but actually, the Karoo finds itself, as I've just showed you in the previous graph, very ill. And so I'm going to do something crazy for an actuarial society conference. And I am going to, while I put on a new image, read you a small portion from the book that I'm currently writing to try and paint you a picture of what illness looks and feels like here. So in the small Karoo town where I've set up base, every day is a confrontation with the mountain. This is not a mountain gently calling your eyes to the horizon with valleys waiting to cradle you. Instead, it looks you in the eye, commanding your attention and your reverence. The mountain is always at your chest or your back, hovering over your head or swimming in your throat. On one of the mountain's lower peaks stands a tall crucifix, growing larger as you draw closer to the edges of town. During my first few weeks here, congregations gathered at the foot of the cross to pray for rain. On nearby farms, I had seen wastelands where dams once were. All around the region, farmers dug deeper boreholes and deeper debt. When the local pharmacist talks about the weight of chronic illness here, she says, people must return to the mountain. With nearly every prescription she dispenses, she recommends tea made from mpepo, harvested from the mountain slopes, and returned to the people. The pills flowing over her counter are for blutdruck, high blood pressure, seiker, diabetes, respiratory conditions, and chronic pain. While they may not be technically communicable, the escalated awareness and diagnosis of NCDs has often felt like a similar contagion. Many people are taking three or four chronic medications at once, with the town's health staff desperately trying to support adherence, manage drug interactions, and cope with stockouts. In the town's public clinics, I quickly learned the names of tramadol for pain relief and tripoline, an antidepressant, adding to the assortment of pills swallowed daily. When you ask people about sickness here, some will say it's the water. Others say it's the food. There is talk of the dust in the air and the cold in the mountain, the slow nights of fast drinking and the families shook by traumas. Laborers work 12-hour shifts sharing bread and coke at lunchtime. Financial stress and crippling debt rattle black, white, and colored households alike. 
businesses offering cash loans or funeral services outnumber grocers. Here, descendants of the Khoisan, the Trak Burj, the 1920 British settlers, and Kobaz Amakosa live together in embattled but deeply intimate relationship. This is a place of great dis-ease, but it is also one of care, where nurses deliver soup in clinic queues, where Umchat sits patiently every week for the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, even if no one shows, where recipes for offal with apricots are slow-cooked and shared on weekends, where congregations gather to pray for the sick and the elderly, where clinicians are also mystics, where town gossip lays bare each one's physical, emotional, and historical wounds, wounds ready for salt and soothing. So this here is a picture of social media from this area, common groups from Khrafanet, from Samsiris, from Cradock, where people are bemoaning the extent of chronicity uh, in the areas where they live. And you'll see that environmental, which came up on our, on our flip chart here, environmental concerns and bodily concerns really intersect here in important ways. So I want to talk very briefly to, to four social and structural drivers of NCDs that I've observed during my fieldwork that are crucially important. Um, and food environments is one. This picture uh, is from Somerset East, which some of you may have been there. The picture on the left is uh, the run-down old market where local goods from farms used to be sold. As you can see, it's dilapidated and people don't go there anymore. On the right is a pile of waste literally down the, the street um, from this market. And the picture really represents something quite profound about the change that has happened um, in the Karoo over this time. And it's happened in a fairly recent series of decades. And that change looks something like this. There was once a time in which there were farms in the Karoo that were fairly self-sustaining. In addition to their livestock, they would also grow wheat and have a vegetable garden. They would have farm workers living on the property. Often farm workers were paid very little cash, but they were paid in kind with livestock from the farm and uh, with, with a ration from the vegetable garden, lard, sugar, and so on. It's a deeply feudal system. I'm by no means suggesting um, that it's a great utopia. There is a real sense of owners and owned, and it has been happening in this area for a very long time. But something quite profound has shifted in recent decades, and it's come from a lot of important social changes. The one has been that there has been significant amounts of drought which have put a lot of pressure on farmers and made it also very difficult for people of any kind uh, to grow. The other have been important political changes. So there has been good and democratic pressure to pay farm workers wages and at least the minimum wage. As a consequence, wages are paid in cash and the amount of food that is being given to laborers on the farm is minimal to none. But that cash is able to buy people a lot less and a lot lesser quality than what the ration may have once looked like. Many people in this region shop on a monthly basis because of when wages are paid and how far they are away from grocery stores. And that's whether you're on a farm or not because we know social grants work in a, in a similar way. They travel very far and at great expense to the grocery store. And then they have to keep that food over a long period of time. So it's no wonder that they're buying food that lasts, uh, which is usually more processed. Uh, and it's no wonder that they're buying food that will go far, things like maize meal, for example. 
And so diets have fundamentally changed. At the 1990s, when democracy had so did big food in this area, the arrival of big supermarkets, spa, pick and pay, big alcohol, big tobacco. So this pile of waste that you see on, our, on your right is really a huge reflection of what consumption looks like in these regions now. And, and many of the crew towns I work in find themselves in a really embattled relationship with waste. Waste that would not exist if big food, big alcohol, and big tobacco didn't exist. Uh, this has taken a very common roadside stop that many of you would have passed if you've ever done a road trip through the Karoo, but this is also where farm workers stop, farm laborers stop, where people commuting to neighboring towns where they need to work stop, people fencing. A lot of people are eating on the move in this region, which also has implications for what people eat. This is a, a blister pack for diabetes medication. I found two of them, actually, at this particular waste stop, which also signals um, that people are not only eating on the move, but taking medication on the move, and highlights the real prevalence of diabetes in this, in this area. So now to kind of take, so people are probably asking, why should I care about this? This is the career, it's far off and nowhere, and no one's living rural lives anyway. So let's take a look at what goes on in Kyalicha. This is data uh, from UWC School of Public Health. And again, it's about food environments, trying to break our assumptions about individual choice versus food environments. A person can have a decision about what they want to eat, but if that food is not readily available, it's, it's often very quick to change what it is that you are consuming. So just to zoom in on a few important things here. These are the stuff we really are interested in, the vegetables, the fruit, the kind of fresh stuff, vegetables that are cooked, uh, vegetables that are raw. The bulk of that is coming from stores, and by that we mean roadside hawkers. That's where people are getting the most of their fresh stuff in Kyalicha. And yet those same stores are the ones that are often uh, being run off the streets by police who have a quite anti-hawker policy in this, in this part of the country, and the country more broadly. But let's take a look at the other things. So highly processed meats, so this is not great quality meat, and sugar are mostly being bought in formal retailers. So the assumption that bringing big food into places like Somerset East is going to give people access to more healthier, cheaper food, um, the cheaper might be true, but the, the healthier is certainly not bearing out. And then if we look at these soft drinks, the sugary drinks that are a huge uh, kind of driver behind a lot of our, um, um, our NCD problems, those are from informal shops. And I want to talk about that quickly here because um, in, in my kind of research and thinking about informal shops, by this I mean kind of spaza shops, Coca-Cola in the kind of post-90s period, this is a kind of double-edged sword, spent a lot of time investing in small businesses, township economies in particular, and, and spaza shops. Uh, and Coca-Cola would, of course, fill these spaza shops with all kinds of products, including soft drinks, and many livelihoods have grown and flourished from this. So in some ways, an important economic intervention, in other ways, a deathly intervention for the soft drinks that have been kind of promulgated all over the country. Sorry. So I want to talk a little bit about cycles of illness, and I won't spend too long on this, because we spoke about comorbidity earlier, but I, this is, again, to break down the idea that infectious and non-infectious epidemics are happening separately. They're not. They're happening very much together. We know that there's a relationship between HIV and hypertension. I'm very happy to talk about these relationships at much more depth and to send all kinds of sources, but this has to do with inflammatory and immune responses and sometimes side effects of the treatment um, itself. We know that hypertension and diabetes are very closely intertwined in terms of how they manifest in patients. There's also a relationship between diabetes and, and TB. Um, in both directions, we know a very established relationship between HIV and TB. 
if your lungs are really fragile from TB, then your likelihood of, of getting COPD, that's chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, is massively increased. Obvious relationship between hypertension and cardiovascular problems is a, a, a kind of um, complication of unattended to hypertension. And then there is, there is growing research around the relationship between HIV and cardiovascular problems. So you develop this really intense nexus, and then you add mental illness to that um, conglomeration, mental illness making it less likely that you will eat well or exercise or adhere to your medication, uh, and things start to feel very intractable never mind all the effects of the multiple medications you're taking and the interactions of them. But, uh, oh yes, this is a brilliant. So this is also really helping to show you this interaction of, of non-infectious and infectious conditions. This is the district where I'm working, Sada Bartman. NCDs are in the blue bar. If you look at the age group, that's 25 to 64. So that's people dying earlier than they should. That's 45% that are dying of NCDs amongst women, and 39% amongst men, which you'll see is not far off from those orange bars, which are the infectious conditions here. The other thing I just want to note is early on in people's lives, you'll see those green bars, that's injury. And in this region, that's violence. And if we think about the, the, vector, the relationship between violence, mental illness, and then NCDs, it's very possible that there's a kind of, if you imagine a kind of tumbleweed or a snowball rolling as cumulative effects of these social determinants of health start to pick up and really hit home later on in life. So who's been to Cook House? Raise your hand. Oh, excellent. Very few, but important place to talk about in terms of this point again. Cook House used to be a very important train stop in the Karoo. It's now a very important truck stop. And that's partly why it has such a high rate of HIV, uh, because of the trucks passing in and out and, and all the transactional sex that is involved in that economy. But I want to talk about Cookhouse again to point to these social determinants that we've been gesturing to this whole presentation. At the moment, Cookhouse is experiencing another less talked about infectious disease, and that is a like, raging scabies epidemic. And they have been dealing with this for at least the last year or so. Clinicians are overrun with babies and moms who are suffering from scabies. Scabies, kind of like lice, is treated quite easily. You apply an ointment. You must wash all the linen in your house. You must wash your clothes with, with hot water. And when everything's clean and the little hojas are gone, then in theory, you should be free of scabies. Seems simple enough, but actually not at all. Because a lot of these houses in Cookhouse don't have access to water, never mind hot water. Having everyone in the house be present at one time in very migratory families to um, be, bathe everyone in hot water and everyone's linen and clothes is, is a very tall order. And so because of that, the scabies epidemic keeps rolling. And much like the scabies epidemic has these kinds of actually underlying structural and social causes, so too do NCDs. So just like I talked about that nexus of illness connections, biological illness connections, I want to talk a little bit about social um, clusters that make chronic illness so difficult to handle. Yogeshi mentioned that when, if someone is dealing with great stress, they're more likely to be chronically ill. That chronic illness can also lead them to be more stressed. And so you find yourself in a kind of vicious cycle. If someone is working, and we see this a lot in the group, someone is working hard every day, they can develop something like a kind of chronic pain from being bent over all day. Maybe they're developing forms of arthritis. And because of that, they can't work. Because they can't work, they can't afford the food they need to eat to present, prevent themselves from becoming chronically sick. And so again, it's a kind of circular entrapment. 
Another really important cycle is around caregiving. You have a really sick relative, and so you want to take care of them, but in the process of that caregiving and the burden of that caregiving, you yourself find yourself at risk of illness. And I want to talk one quick story here, because I'm very wary that we want to have as much discussion time as possible. Um, recently, I was in a clinic with a young, I mean, not that young, a 50-something-year-old woman who had come in to get a referral for a disability grant. She didn't have any obvious disabilities, but she was clearly in need of a dis of some support at home, financial support. And so an examination was being done by the doctor, checking her feet, checking her arms, and so on. And then she checked her blood pressure. And as it turned out, her blood pressure was sky high. Like the doctor thought she might have a stroke that day and wanted to get her immediately into the hospital. But what then happened was about an hour-long conversation in which this woman said, I can't go to the hospital. I have children at home. I need to take care of them. And we couldn't get her into the hospital. And who knows if she ever ended up into the hospital. But that is not a, an uncommon situation. When people are looking after others who are ill, their health-seeking is very likely to decline. The same is true around things like cooking. Women are not cooking for themselves. They are cooking mostly for children. And it's led by what they believe children need and want necessar not necessarily their own health needs. Very briefly on land, because we spoke about this earlier, the environmental concerns are very real here. Lack of water means less likelihood to take your pills to be able to grow. When the air is filled with dust, your lungs are incredibly vulnerable. Uh, when the earth is dry, similarly related to the, the drought question, many people in the Karoo burn fires in their home because it gets incredibly cold, which again leads to a lot of lung problems. So now what we would like to do, because we've just kind of flooded you with, <laughs> with all of these kind of thoughts from both of our, our very different but overlapping fields, uh, is to open up this conversation. And I'm going to let you guess you lead, and uh -huh. I'm going to turn to the flipboard. <laughs> okay. Um, so we want to first have some reflection time and then some questions. So we'll take some moments to reflect you can reflect individually on what three things stood out for you and how you might integrate this within your circle of influence. So we are aware that when we discuss systemic influences, the default response might be like, this is too big for me to solve. This is now something that needs to be legislated. We need more policies. This is like a government thing. But like we said at the start, all of you have tremendous influence in your spheres, both in your homes and at work and the ripple effect of that. So I'm going to time one minute. You can make notes on your phone <laughs> and then we'll discuss as a group. Go. And the three things can be either like a personal insights or a professional actuarial thing. Okay. And stop. So we were going to discuss with our neighbors, but actually let's discuss as a group. So who has the first comment or question to share with us? Yes. Thanks. Barry, you can also feel these as questions. Thank you. Thanks for the presentation. Um, I think it's very relevant. The main thing that pops up in my mind is education. I mean, some of the things that you mentioned, for example, soft drinks, um, you know, I personally, uh, when I went to university, already started just avoiding that altogether. And, you know, when you talk about socioeconomic environments, um, 
that is a very, for me, a very clear choice. It's human choice. It's not um, something that is you are forced into the situation because of your situation. Um, so you're saying that when we know better, we should do better. Yeah. So basically, understanding the health implica health implications of our mm -hmm. diets and the things that we put into our bodies. Yeah, it's definitely a factor. Thanks. Although from personal experience, I'm not sure if you guys do better that, at this than me. I know a lot about my condition, and I still fail very often. Yes. Um. <laughs> okay, there's so many. So let's just maybe start with, um, we'll just get a few comments. And you've got the mic, so you go. Hi. Um, it was a very interesting talk. I work for the Vitality Group, and I'm doing a lot of research at the moment into NCDs, mm -hmm. particularly um, these um, like cardiometabolic ones that you're discussing now. And something that really stood out for me um, when you mentioned the sort of urban-rural chronicity. Uh, I'm from a small farm town in the middle of nowhere myself, so I, I do understand a bit of the dynamics. And aside from the educational aspect, I think there's also been a migration of the youth to the cities. Mm. So what, what I found is that these rural areas tend to have older populations, so by well, by definition of chronic conditions, we'd expect them to have higher chronicity. Um, have you accounted for age when looking at this? So, you know, if you if you adjust it for, for age, how does the... Uh, <laughs> I want to ask you a question, sorry. How do the prevalence, how does the prevalence differ? The one with causes of death. Uh, mm, it's the district health barometer. So this is oh. an age standardized. Mm. Oh, okay. Which, because I mean, that's exactly that, right. This is what I yes. thought when I first saw that the Karoo districts were coming out so strongly. I was like, well, of course. It's and, old. And, and <laughs> Akwa, for example, you know, it's interesting to me that it comes up because its population is in general quite old. And so I, I was immediately when I saw an Akwa coming up um, on many of the diabetes, hypertension, many of these indices. But this is the age standardized as class parameter, and, and still, this is what we find. And okay. So I, but I do think that that is, I think the point to make about migration is still utterly essential, because, partly because of the, the movement and what that means for how people work and eat, but partly also because of the households left behind, whose caregiving burden is immense. So it's not just elderly people who are having to care for five or six young children, it's 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, who are starting to show many of the signs and symptoms we might only expect usually much later on in life. I am, and this I suspect, is partly because of the extent of responsibility that they are shouldering with this kind of gap in, in the population. Sorry, I'm quite a loud person. Okay. Yes. Good day. My name is Zietzingobese from We Solve for X. So what was quite interesting, which is prevalent, common across the country, was on the illegal dumping of waste that I saw on the picture. Mm -hmm. So um, 
and then look at the correlation with the NCTs. I mean, um, we're currently running a project with the like, cleaning up campaign and the education element. So what has been shocking is that um, since inception on the 4th of May with the community members around different townships, we filled over 75,000 refuse bags from the general waste that usually comes from homes and all kind of space. But uh, what was quite interesting from the data is that 75% of the waste was diapers. So I think um, it could also increase to, to the NCD contribution so far. And also the education element become very, very important. I think uh, it should not only focus on professional level, but it should also go on grassroots level. That's what we're currently doing. Um, our campaign is called We Solve for X, Cleaning My Planet. So we're trying to make a contribution in that space. That's really, that's really inspiring, actually. And um, something I forgot to mention, because I can barely see my slides over this lectern, is that um, I wonder if I can go back to a lot of animations here. Just bear with me. This, the systemic construct aspect. There's evidence that if we can shift any one of those bullet points on that food system sequence, we can actually shift an epidemic in a community. And Barry mentioned one of the, um, or pointed us to some of the work happening in Australia with Aboriginal communities around strengthening a community's approach to food. So education, looking at um, reviving bush foods and integrating those into the diets, reducing the waste in the community, um, looking at how the stores are stocked, putting a nutritionist in that store. And it's really, it really made a huge impact on the health of the community. So, and then similar things around like that second point, distancing food producer from consumer. There's a whole trend around urban farming and like handmade food. So it sounds very pastoral and maybe very privileged, but it also has an impact of like reducing the cost and improving the access and the desirability of fresher foods in um, environments that might not otherwise make those choices. Okay, next question. Who has a mic? Yeah. So Tim Noakes from Cape Town. Thanks. So I'll be talking about diet a little bit later, mm -hmm. but just to come back to your sugar story, um, I think that's, you know, we have to realize sugar is a drug and the community is completely addicted to it and the focus of big food is to make sure that the child's addicted at the age of eight months and that's it and it's not a game we can't you know it's not it's really serious big food controls all the dietary guidelines that control all the dietitian organizations every single dietary guideline back going back to 1900 has been controlled by the seventh day adventists who are a pro-vegan group and also by big, big food. And there's an organization called International Life Sciences Institute, which was directly involved in my trial because I'm fighting against sugar and high carbohydrate, highly processed foods. So if you, want to control, if you really want to make people healthy, you have to get big food out. And that had, government has to do that. And of course, without that, it's hopeless. 80% of processed foods have sugar. And that's until we stop shopping and supporting the supermarkets, we can't change things. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I disagree with it being hopeless because I'm already very appreciative for the increasing awareness and adoption of the Banting diet. Guys, I used to be addicted to cake 
I cannot tell you how grateful I am that I can now get sugar-free cake. <laughs> so there is progress, and it's really, it's really inspiring that as we start understanding um, these choices, they are infiltrating and becoming more available to some of us. What we're talking about here is how do we make them available to more people? Because you can see the scale of it is really massive. We need like more. How do you magnify this and like make it make healthy choices more infectious, as infectious and as addictive as sugar is? And I, I don't know how to do that part. So, so in our programs, we have an Eat Better South Africa campaign through the Noakes Foundation, yeah. and we work in communities. You just give them the information, and it's mm -hmm. astonishing how effective it is. Yeah. Hypertension just disappears. Metabolic syndrome starts reversing. Diabetes starts reversing. And the food is available, but they have to understand. We have to understand. You've got to take out processed food. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Yes? Um, can we get a mic to... Oh, okay, sorry, right. we'll go with you sorry. first. <laughs> um, sort, of, sort of starting at a level from sort of a public spending priority point of view, right? Yeah. So we can spend like 100 rands on healthcare in sort of the Western medicine mode, mm. um, but we're basically treating the symptoms, right? Or, you know, the reality is we have so many failing local governments in South Africa, right? And so people buy Coke because they can't drink the tap water. Yeah. Um, so in terms of our spending priorities, how important is it that we focus on the basics instead of treating the symptoms? Yeah. That is a really excellent question. And I actually want to find out, can I get us some responses from the audience? Can I provoke a response? Because okay. you just, this isn't an answer, but it points to what you're discussing here. I think one of the challenges is certainly big food. Another big challenge is that there are certain conditions that have allowed big food to perform the exploitative role that they, that they have performed. And a lot of that is around the livelihoods kind of question that you mentioned. Just to draw a parallel, many of you will know that fracking is a huge debate in this part of the kind of country. And the big debate around fracking, where it is a debate in these small towns, is those who are worried about fracking for environmental reasons and those who are probably way too optimistic about fracking for its supposed economic opportunity that it's bringing to impoverished towns. And that battleground just kind of rages on and on and on. For me, I think the challenge is how do we create livelihoods and opportunity for people in ways that also do not make people increasingly unhealthy and make them actually more destitute and need another solution. Because at the moment, our answers to livelihoods, and it's easy to exploit people who really need those answers to livelihoods, have also been detrimental to those self-same livelihoods. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I mentioned earlier this concept of a well-being economy. It does start, sort of start to speak to those spending priorities. It's not so simple as um, fixing them independently, because as we can see, NCDs are... Um, it's more about conditions of ill health than just like fixing a, an epidemic or pathogen. And what I, I'm really, I was really uh, inspired to see is how it, that's becoming part of an economic uh, uh, debate, an economic policy debate, where people are building an investment case 
for not only preventing, not only treating, but also preventing the conditions that are driving these diseases. Um, the quote there at the bottom is from the Lancet Task Force on NCD and NCDs and Economics. And it finds that financial protection can really break this cycle. And that, that was the part that I thought, oh, I can do something about that. Certainly price policies and taxation helps, like the sugar tax. Uh, there was also talk of a salt tax, you know. But we have to move away from looking at these naughty nutrients to a more holistic idea of health and disease. And understand that controlling these epidemics has ripple effects that maybe that matters more in some respects than fixing um, things in a siloed way. And I think we're running out of time. <laughs> so, yeah, I, 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 we're out of time. I think there could be a lot more questions, and I think it's an ongoing discussion for anybody uh, who's interested in, 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 in healthcare, life expectancy, morbidity, etc. If we had more time, I would have particularly liked your um, some more debate on the mental illness side of the NCD. So it's easy to sort of focus on food and sugar because it's something you can see and touch. Mental health is a bit more enigmatic, um, and uh, certainly in the private sector, but also in other areas, a massively growing um, problem. Um, but please, I want you all to give them a, a round of uh, applause. I think a wonderful talk. Thank you so much. And we will look forward to your book, Beth.